I'm Josh Davey. And I'm Alex Dunning. And we're the hosts of the Go Find Yourself podcast. A podcast created to inspire and unpack candid conversations with the best entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in their field right now. Powered by Cedars, we're the UK's number one online private equity marketplace, helping groundbreaking startups from around the world receive the funding they need to take their business to the next level. Stick around as we bring you weekly episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We really like it. Hello, Josh. Hey, Alex. And hello to all of our listeners. Uh, this week, we've got a really exciting guest, our boss, I guess, technically, the co-founder and executive chairman of Cedars, Jeff Lynn. Yeah, uh, Jeff felt like the right guest to have first ever episode of Go Fund Yourself, and not just because he's bankrolling the whole thing, but also because he's actually a really, really interesting bloke. Yeah, Jeff started the business with Carlos Silva, Cedars' other co-founder, in 2012. And really, he was coming at it from the angle of the investor, trying to open up this asset class for investors. Whereas Carlos, from the other side of the table, was looking at it from an entrepreneur's perspective, seeing businesses struggle to raise money, especially post-crash. Um, and so they combine their expertise and experience to, to found Cedars and, and bring it all together. Yeah, if you're not familiar with what Cedars is, basically started as an equity crowdfunding platform, um, essentially allowing investors to invest from as little as £10 into startups seeking to raise you know, their investment where they sort of seed Series A growing businesses, essentially. Um, and over the last, well, close to 10 years, um, they've funded over 800 businesses across over 1,500 funding rounds. Um, and facilitated over 1.4 billion pounds worth of investment um, and I, ne- I think now the the, the vision for Cedars has, has changed slightly it's no longer just a kind of equity crowdfunding platform um, it's really about bringing and bringing a sort of full private equity marketplace to a global stage um, and so with the introduction of, of innovations through the secondary market um, and other features Cedars is now a kind of one-stop shop for all things private equity. Yeah, this episode is a really interesting insight into that entrepreneur story and especially sort of when to play your cards right, when to sort of cash in your chips and knowing where the value that you can place for a business is. So definitely worth a listen. Yeah, absolutely. That that playing to your strengths piece is really, really interesting. Jeff actually started out as CEO when I started um, all those years ago. Um, He's no longer CEO. He actually handed that over to another Jeff, Jeff Kaliski. Um, who Jeff uh, describes as a really outstanding CEO, as do I, and I'm not just contractually obliged to say that. Um, So yeah, do stay tuned. Super, super interesting episode. Jeff has lots of insights, not just about his own entrepreneurial journey, but as someone who's helped hundreds of founders across the world to raise funds. He has lots of insight about lots of different entrepreneurial journeys. Jeff. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome to the first ever Go Find Yourself podcast. Uh, very happy to, to have you on. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, an honor to be, be the first here. This is great. Absolutely. For the, for, for the listeners, uh, this is rather embarrassingly, this is the second time we, we will have recorded this with, with Jeff. Um, we actually managed to lose the recordings of the original, which you know is only testament to, I guess, uh, well, I don't know if I should, you should even be saying that, uh, considering I technically work for Jeff, so it can't reflect too, too well on myself. Uh, but we've also got uh, Alex, who is the co-host, who will introduce himself as well. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, I guess, you know, 50% of the blame is also on me for losing the recording, so it doesn't reflect well on either of us. We always positioned it as a dry run anyway. The truth is, I didn't think I did a good job on that. So when you guys told me that you'd lost the recording, I actually just, I was just as happy to have a do-over. 
Second time lucky. Anyway, let's crack on. So for those who don't know, uh, Jeff Flynn is the chairman of Cedars. Cedars is uh, Europe's biggest and most active equity crowdfunding and private marketplace for shares. So to crack on and to sort of give the, give the listeners a bit of context, in your own words, Jeff, what is Cedars? Uh, what does it do um, and why does it exist? Yeah, absolutely. So Cedars is very simply meant to be a a marketplace for investing in private companies. We set out to bring some of the efficiencies, technology, and disciplines of the markets that help finance other asset classes into the world of startups and scale-ups. I'm a huge believer in the value-creating potential of small, agile businesses that are trying to take over the world. Uh, But historically, the way they went about raising money um, and the way investors went about investing in them was very inefficient, very opaque, very clubby, and and still is in many ways. And so we 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 built Cedars, you know, starting a decade ago to try to give investors of all shapes and sizes, from small retail up to large institutional investors, a straightforward, uh, seamless way to invest in and build a portfolio of these businesses, uh, and in turn to give SMEs, whether they are you know, brand new startups seeking their first financing or later stage businesses who want to diversify their their funding base, a straightforward way to raise that capital. And that really is in a nutshell what Cedar set out to do and what we do today. Thanks, Jeff. I mean, that's, that's super, super interesting. And I think, I guess, from your perspective, you kind of sit at that intersection of seeing, you know, having built your own business, but then building this investor marketplace. And I guess for you, kind of, what, what do you find the most rewarding? And when you were building Cedars, were you building it with the entrepreneurs in mind or are you building it with a sort of investor first mindset that's a great question and and i don't think you can build a a successful two-sided marketplace without thinking a lot about both sides but my co-founder carlos silva and i definitely came at this from slightly different sets of experience you know carlos really he was a technologist he'd uh, worked with uh, a number of, of really interesting small businesses and seen the struggles they'd had in raising capital. Um, and I think very much thought of this with an entrepreneur's hat on. You know, I love entrepreneurs and, and also was very sort of conscious of their perspective, but my background was more on the investment side. And I was really interested in, you know, how do you open up this type of investment to, you know, ordinary people, which which I think is so important. I think there's such a big wealth gap out there where wealthy people have the chance to invest in assets that produce outstanding returns and people who don't meet a certain cutoff, you know, or don't have lots and lots of time on their hands uh, are forced to invest in things that don't produce as much returns and just sort of, you know, further deepens existing inequalities. And so I was really interested in the democratization of investment. And, you know, a great thing about our business is that it's synergistic and it's a virtuous circle. You know, the investors are only relevant if we've got good deals to fund. The deals are only relevant if there's capital to fund them. So, you know, very much looked at this from both angles, but my personal passion has probably always been more on the investment side. I want to kind of just take it back to the the entrepreneur side and you kind of that perspective of like seeing the struggles to to raise money, which, you know, I think can probably be the most stressful thing for entrepreneurs. I just like to kind of understand from your perspective, how how do entrepreneurs raise funds? Obviously, you've got businesses like Cedars, but for that first time entrepreneur, when they need to raise some money to, to fuel the growth of their business, like where do they even start? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly the genesis of Cedars and the way we thought about it at first was primarily focused on those, you know, entrepreneurs at their earliest stages. Uh, I'll say in a minute how 
we have found as we've grown that our, our value proposition actually offers a lot to later stage entrepreneurs as well. And, and, you know, that was a sort of almost delightful surprise for us. But when we started out, we really were thinking about the first time entrepreneurs, the people raising their first few hundred thousand pounds, let's say, to take a concept and, you know, build out a prototype, do a market test begin generating revenue because that is the stage that institutions historically did not touch and so in you know entrepreneurs were left you know sort of with the luck of angels and if they happen to be connected to a handful of wealthy individuals then great and and there was always i think a, a tremendous class bias in which entrepreneurs raised money i mean i remember if you looked at you know the sort of the startups in britain of the first decade of this century of you know the, which is the sort of data set we were looking at uh, when we started working on this in 2008-2009 you know it was a heavy skew toward uh, public school educated, you know, fairly well-to-do, you know, families. And there was a reason for that. Those were the people who had the connections to the people who could deliver uh, money. And there were a few independent angel networks, a few other opportunities, but it was, as I say, pretty opaque and pretty difficult. And I remember going, you know, back in 08, 09, I would talk to VCs. I would say to them, look, you know, get it. I get that you don't like to invest in businesses that are this small. There are all sorts of reasons why you don't. So where should an entrepreneur go? And, and, it was always a hum, ha, I don't know, maybe you know somebody. And, and it was a really, really sort of challenged world. And, and I think it, look, it still is in many ways. I think that, you know, what we have tried to bring to the fore has been, you know, a different way for those types of entrepreneurs to raise capital, to leverage the power of their communities, and to be able to go out not just to one or two rich uncles, but to hundreds, if not thousands of friends, fans, potential customers, existing customers, and other supporters to raise small amounts from them. I think that's a very important part of what we do, but it doesn't solve the entire equation. And I continue to think that the amount of entrepreneurial talent in this country, in Europe, and globally, you know, far exceeds the number of entrepreneurs who are getting funded today. Uh, and with more capital and with more a more efficient way of funding these entrepreneurs, I think there would be a huge growth in innovation, a huge growth in the number of great businesses being built. Now, look, later stage is different. And, you know, many of the companies we work with at Cedars today are, are in a different position where they've got lots of opportunities to raise capital. The institutions do want to invest in them. There are lots of private individuals who kind of come out of the woodwork, but they choose Cedars and they choose the online marketplace route uh, because they see the value of having that community of investors around them. So for them, it's less solving you know the fundamental pain of not being able to raise money, but it is providing value that other types of investors simply can't bring. How do those early rounds for Cedars take shape? Well, you know, they took shape in with exactly the kind of haphazard, somewhat unfair dynamic that we were kind of railing against. Our very first capital in, uh, about 25,000 pounds, came from Carlos's landlord. Um, Carlos had an, a flat in Oxford. Uh, when we were doing our MBAs together, uh, and his landlord happened to have been a former tech executive who had had a good exit and was interested in investing in some startups and met Carlos and started talking with him. And that was it. It, it was serendipity. And, and, you know, I am both very grateful to him uh, for having taken a chance on us, but I'm also almost repulsed by the fact that that's how we had to, you know, that, that, that it took that bit of good luck uh, to raise that money. And then, and then even after that, I mean, I had been a lawyer uh, Carlos had been a professional in Portugal, and a lot of our next initial money came from, you know, well-to-do friends we had made. And thanks to the connections we had, we were able to uh, fund it there. And then it was only after we started to get some traction and only after we got toward regulatory approval and we won a big startup competition, people started to notice us, 
that actually a, a lot of truly independent investors started to take notice and we had the opportunity to raise money in what you would think of as the more classic way. But, you know, those first, it was a few years for us as we, we went through the regulatory approval processes and, and sort of got ourselves to a position where we could launch. It was a very offline, lucky, inefficient way, which just reinforced, I think, even more the importance of what we were doing. Yeah. And so, I mean, you just mentioned Carlos there. So, so going back all, I guess, all the way to the beginning of the founding of Cedars, it was sort of, like you say, coming out of the, the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, the, the whole financial ecosystem was in a sort of, you know, really volatile period. It, it ended up late, uh, sort of laying fertile soil, I guess, for the, for the next generation of, of fintechs. With Cedars, built, I guess, to scratch almost a sort of personal itch. You hear many founders saying, I wanted to solve this problem because it's a problem I had. Or was seen as more of a, well, I've seen a gap in the market post-2008. The financial landscape is changing. And I think we can go and democratize sort of venture capital and in, in so doing, kind of build a, a profitable business. I think it was actually probably a combination of, of three things, uh, two of which you mentioned. So uh, one was certainly, you know, and I think the real starting point was, we see the demand. We see the need at a personal level. I mean, it was Car- this was Carlos's idea. Uh, he had you know, observed the advent, early advent of peer-to-peer lending platforms like Zopa and Kiva internationally, and he was you know he was the one who kind of posed the question: Could you do this for the equity of startups instead of lending sort of little bits of money in a, in a debt instrument? Could you do it with equity? And it's much more complicated legally and from a structural perspective. But that was kind of the exam question he posed when we started working on this as a project. You know, and and immediately he and I both said, well, look, if you could do it, this would be amazing because clearly there are lots of entrepreneurs who struggle to get funding. There are lots of people, including the two of us. I mean, we were both people who would have loved to have invested a few hundred quid into some great businesses, but we didn't have, you know, we were just 30 years old, just, you know, early in our careers and, you know, didn't have the kind of money to be angel investors. And so, you know, we saw the demand from the investor side as well. So certainly part of it was a personal edge. As we then delved deeper into the kind of research, and this was, you know, the advantage of doing something like this in a business school context, uh, is that you you wind up, you know, having the, the sort of freedom and space to really do some of the research, to go out, to talk to people, to do some of the things that are harder to do when, when you're in a full-time job. And so we had a little bit of headspace around that. And it was then that we really started to formulate this view that, oh yeah, there really is a gap in the market. There are, you know, you look at all these different asset classes and all these different types of investors, and there is some form of more or less efficient intermediation between almost all of them, except when you get into this very early stage and, you know, larger groups of investors. And so we we definitely saw the kind of opportunity. And I think those two things would both would have been true in 2004 or 2014, as much as they were true in 2009. I don't think the financial crisis necessarily directly impacted them. And certainly the problems we were identifying with the startup funding landscape and the opportunity that was there, um, those were not things that were directly caused uh, by the financial crisis. You know, they existed long before it. And I I remember a couple of years, you know, maybe 2010, 2011, uh, being at an event and somebody said to a panelist and said, you know, well, is, you know, do we have a problem that because of the financial crisis, the banks have stopped lending to startups? And I remember his response saying, well, first of all, banks never lent to startups. And second of all, if I find out that my bank is lending to startups, I'm taking all my money out of that bank because, you know, startups are a high risk venture. They're not meant for 
traditional debt-based finance. They're intended for risk-sharing equity type of investment. And so that was not something that was directly touched by the financial crisis. But I think the third dynamic was that, as you say, the, the financial crisis laid, I think, fertile soil for, you know, a wave of fintechs. And I think that, you know, people like us coming, and there are many others at the time in all sorts of areas, in payments, in alternative investments, in banking and elsewhere. And, you know, and I think a lot of us sort of coming out to the market saying, hey, we've got a better way of doing this bit of finance than has been done before. I don't know if five years earlier, people would have listened to us as much. I think you might have had more people, be they investors, uh, you know, be they you know potential customers, be they people to provide capital, even you know, be they regulators, more people who would have said, "Look, the status quo financial system kind of works," and it would have been a much more uphill battle, even if the merits were all the same. I think to persuade them, but I think we wound up pushing against an open door. I think there was, you know, we were at that early wave of people being excited by fintech, being excited by new ways of doing financial services. And I think that helped, you know, we can't take any credit for that. I think it was good luck in terms of timing, but that certainly helped uh, the journey. So we've we've recently just had Cedars' ninth birthday. How different does Cedars look today to the Cedars you envisioned all those years ago in Oxford doing your MBA thesis? In a number of ways, it looks very similar. You know, there has been a lot about this business that has not changed fundamentally. I think our, particularly our mission, our values, what we're trying to achieve, how we go about doing it, the types of people um, that we've hired and their values have all been very largely consistent with the kinds of things that Carlos and I uh, set out to do initially. And certainly, I think, you know, the extent to which we continue to help fund loads and loads of very early stage businesses and let lots and lots of you know, small investors have the opportunity to back those businesses. You know, it's something I'm very proud of. I mean, you know, we've funded you know almost 1,500 deals now, and you know, seen over you know well over a billion pounds you know, invested on the platform. And and you know, I could never have conceived, I think, of those numbers at the time. But you know, it's very much in line with what we wanted to do. I think the probably two areas that are different and that I would not have expected are were one, as I alluded to earlier, the appeal of what we do to larger and later stage businesses. I mean, I think you know, I think Carlos and I started with a somewhat naive assumption that once you got up to the point where institutional capital was available, your needs were largely met, that the market was kind of working well enough there. And and I do think it works okay. I don't think it's the kind of sort of disaster that the very early stages is. But you know, the extent to which we've seen businesses ranging from Chapel Down to Revolut and many other sort of big, you know, mature and and, and still fast growing companies, you know, see the value of what we do has been very different from what I expected, and obviously very, very exciting. So that's one thing that I think has been quite different. I think the other thing has been, and I say this particularly now, it might not have been as true up until a couple of years ago, but the diversity of products that we're offering. I mean, there's there used to be a joke within Cedars that if you wanted to know what Cedars was going to do next, just look at what Jeff Lynn said we would never do. And I don't know that that holds in too many cases, but it certainly held in the case of our secondary market. Where I'd said early on, I said, look, I said, secondary liquidity would be amazing, but it's an illusion. You know, you're never going to get lots and lots of buyers coming in, you know, to a secondary market. And I think it sets false expectations. Let's not even focus on that. And then, you know, sure enough, for various reasons, we decided to give it a try in 2017. And 
uh, we now have what I think is you know potentially the most successful secondary market for private companies, certainly in, in the UK and probably in, in Europe and worldwide. Uh, so we have seen you know the development of that. We've seen some great products piloted like algorithmic investing and where we still are looking at the right way to commercialize it to you know other products that we are really sort of full steam uh, ahead on, including one that's launching within the next uh, week or two that I don't know if I can say anything about. But we've got you know some great sort of diversity of products for different types of investors. And while I guess I could say I would say that I always hoped we would do something, you know, more rich, you know, than just sort of direct campaigns, as important as the direct campaigns are. It is a far cry from where we started and very exciting. Just for just for reference, by the time this goes out, uh, Private Deal Room will have launched. So everyone listening, definitely go check it out. I guess uh, one kind of pivot I guess we could take from from there is obviously we talked a little bit about the 2008 financial crisis. And I guess it was one of those sort of shockwave moments in sort of society and for the economy that, like you say, left some fertile ground for types of businesses to flourish. We're 2021 now. We've just come out of a sort of very, I guess, difficult, challenging uh, 18 months plus with regards to the sort of COVID-19 pandemic. That's sort of our our latest Black Swan event, if you like. Do you think there's going to be, or or have you started to see uh, a new generation, a new type of business start to emerge, I guess, with with those sort of tailwinds of, of COVID behind them? It's a good question. And I think my instinctive answer is to say it's too early to tell. But actually, I'm sure there are trendsetters and forecasters out there who are far better at this than I am. To me, the main kind of macro takeaway and impact of the COVID pandemic was the acceleration of moving online, you know, a trend that obviously has been going, you know, strong for 25 years. No one gets any credit today, you know, for saying more things are going to happen online than used to. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's abundantly clear. But the pace, you know, accelerated tremendously. And and you have, and, and you know, we see this across different verticals. You know, you have these kind of classic S-curve adoptions where, you know, at some point, you know, that, you know, the early adopters, the people who love this stuff will go in immediately. And then gradually, you'll sort of start getting the mass market, and then you get the holdouts. And for some things, let's say books and the original Amazon, you know, that S curve started pretty early. And by, say, 98, 99, ordinary people were, were regularly buying their books through Amazon. Financial services, in many ways, came 15 years later. And it wasn't until the sort of 2010s that it was commonplace, not just to do kind of, you know, conventional banking online, but to engage in other types of financial services online. And so these things all sort of have their periods and have their times. I think that's all been compressed, all moved forward. I think that, you know, the early adopters are always there, but the mass market and particularly the holdouts, you know, the people who would have preferred to do very little of their, have very little of their lives take place online, had no choice during the pandemic, and they're not going to go back. So I know uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, the the business secretary, recently said something that he feels that the speed of acceleration uh, of digitization was probably a decade, that it probably moved, the pandemic probably moved it forward by 10 years. And, you know, I don't know if there's any science behind that, but it kind of sounds good uh, to me. Um, And so as a result, I think a lot of what I've seen, what I think we've seen, have been the shifts that result from that, not necessarily brand new business models, but business models, digital business models, online models moving much faster than expected, um, offline models uh, struggling more than potentially 
expected. You know, we had a, I, I won't share them by name, but we had a, a great food and beverage business uh, in our portfolio the, whose locations were primarily near workplaces. And, you know, you in 2019, the one thing you could probably rely on was that workers would always need lunch and this place provided relatively healthy meals. And, you know, this was, this was a great proposition. But, you know, now suddenly people work remotely and going into city centers isn't a thing and, and it all kind of fell apart. So that disruption, both in terms of supporting the more digital models and in many ways tearing apart the less digital is, is the main impact that we've seen, but I'm sure there's much more still to come. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting point, especially on the entrepreneur side, but kind of taking it back to that you know, question earlier about like the investor versus entrepreneur kind of approach and where your thinking was, like obviously over the last sort of 12, 18 months of the pandemic, there's been a huge shift in the way that in, you know, in, the, in the financial markets and the way that people invest, particularly around retail or unaccredited investors, you know, the whole GameStop sort of scandal and, and short uh, in the US. And I guess that's brought up a lot of questions that, you know, we see at Cedars because obviously for a lot of people, the pandemic meant less spend and more sort of dwell time online. And so kind of online platforms flourished. But with things like GameStop and certainly things that we've seen, that perception of the crowd or of retail investors has done money. How much did you come up against that or do you still come up against that perception and, and kind of why is it wrong? Yeah, look, I mean, this is this is definitely something that we have come up against since the very beginning. And I think, you know, we met a huge amount of opposition, you know, from sort of traditional types of folks early on about, you know, how, how can you possibly think about letting ordinary people invest in startups. This is only for smart, rich people like me or rich people who are who are therefore smart because we're rich like me. I'm not saying that myself, obviously, but that was the, 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 the voice, you know, that we often heard. And we worked very hard to tear down that perception and say, look, first of all, number one, you know, just because you're rich doesn't make you smart, you know, and just because you're not rich <laughs> doesn't make you dumb. And that's a pretty hard thing for anybody to argue against. And second of all, and probably most importantly, you know, when, when we talked about what, what does investor harm look like and where through the years have investors suffered as a result of investing in high risk or volatile investments? And the answer is, I mean, there have been many, many times where, you know, retail investors got in over their heads, invested money that they shouldn't have invested, uh, and really suffered as a result of the losses. But every single time that happened, it was in a case where the investment was marketed as significantly safer than it was. And I'm going back to the South Sea bubble, you know, in saying that and going forward to the dot-com boom and, and beyond. Every single time this happens, you, it is when investors are told or sold this proposition that, oh, this is safe. This is where you should put all your savings. So people put everything in with no concept of the risk without appropriate diversification. One of the principles we've had from day one here has been to be as upfront as we can with everybody about the risks. Early stage businesses are really high risk. Most will fail. A highly diversified portfolio should produce an outstanding return, but there's no guarantee that it will. And you shouldn't put an amount of money into this asset class uh, that you can't afford to lose. And I think that as a consequence of that transparency and almost ruthlessness uh, that we've tried to maintain in you know, repeating that message, you know, we have a very different sort of you know, situation than maybe some other retail investment products where we have a lot of retail investors, many of whom may not be very financially sophisticated, uh, although I'll get back to sophistication in a moment, but they know what they're getting into in terms of risk. And I think that changes the game dramatically. The other thing I'd say about retail investors is that, you know, different asset classes 
you know, require different levels of kind of experience and professionalism, I think, to analyze well. And, and although there's this often this perception that the public markets are somehow safer for retail investors than the private markets. One of the things that GameStop uh, showed is that actually today the public markets, you know, are lar- particularly short term trading in the public markets are largely driven by all sorts of forces that no retail investor could understand. I can't understand them. The high frequency trading, you know, the complexities of payment for order flow through Robinhood and platforms like that. I mean, these the, the dynamics that drive price movements and we're driving price movements in stocks like GameStop are just vastly, vastly complicated. Now, long-term investing in the public markets is still something I believe in very much for retail investors. But I don't think, frankly, I mean, I'm not a big believer in banning things, but I don't think retail investors should be actively trading and buying and selling. I have a securities portfolio. I certainly don't do that. Whereas investing in startups, I actually think is probably one of the better asset classes for your ordinary person, because as long as you do understand the risks, you're not at much of a disadvantage to the quote unquote professionals. You're fundamentally looking at some very basic things about a company. What, you know, what are they trying to do? What's the market? Who's the team? To what extent do they have a track record? And in many ways, it is your analysis or your understanding of the market more than uh, as much as anybody else's, you know, uh, or stands as good a chance as anybody else's of being right. Uh, and so, you know, and, and I think, frankly, you know, when you have 200, 500, 1,000 diverse retail investors looking at a business and voting with their wallet to say, hey, this looks interesting, I actually think that has a, a very positive signal associated with it. So on, on both counts, both in terms of the kind of risk to investors that we see from some of the things that are going on with meme stocks and with uh, crypto, potentially, as well as the kind of question about whether they really know what they're doing, um, I very much stand by the arguments we made 10 years ago, which is that so long as, as we do, the risks are highly transparently disclosed, there is a great amount of value and very little harm that comes from retail investors investing in early stage businesses. You mentioned it briefly there. Um, and, and if you think that, that sort of day trading on the public markets is a fairly risky business, dare we get you started on crypto? <laughs> Look, first of all, I'm very conscious of not doing this stupid old generational thing of, you know, coming up with an innovation and then trying to pull up the doors behind me. And I have embarrassed myself in recent years by sitting on panels and having conversations with crypto folks where I'm busy sitting there talking about the traditional way of doing crowdfunding. I mean, I want to shoot myself because, you know, I was on the other end of those panels 10 years ago. And and the last thing I want is to be that guy. But look, I have struggled, I think, you know, over the last four or five years to really get my head around the fundamental value proposition that underlies um, much of crypto. I think it's an interesting asset class. I understand why people enjoy trading it. I understand you know, how it can form part of a portfolio. I've got a little bit of crypto in my portfolio. I, I don't disparage it, but I can't form enough of a view around it to develop a, a, a genuinely educated opinion about where does it go from here and what value does it really add? I mean, I think I have never particularly accepted the sort of ultra libertarian, you know, Bitcoin fanatic view of, you know, this is to disrupt all fiat money and this is, you know, the banks are all evil, et cetera, et cetera. That's not my orientation. I do think that crypto provides uh, the opportunity for valuable both assets and currencies sitting alongside other ones. I just don't really know what those are yet. And so, look, I think my view for investors is is to say, as long as you know you recognize that this is still a very new uh, and highly volatile space, and it could, you know, we don't think it, you know, we don't believe it can go to zero, but 
it could go to zero. It could also go to the moon. And, you know, you want to bear those risks, then great. I dislike the fact that the last few years, the Bitcoin price has spiked right after American Thanksgiving because, you know, the, the, the story there is that, you know, young tech savvy people who do have some understanding of it go home to their families and tell grandma about this thing that never, never goes down. And then grandma goes and buys a bunch of Bitcoin. That side of things scares me and, and I hope is brought under more control. Again, I'm not a big believer in banning. I don't think it's necessarily a regulatory thing, but just from a kind of behavioral and cultural perspective, I think it's something that, that we should be on the lookout for. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. And I think it's interesting on the, on the retail point, because I mean, they do have, you know, as retail investors, probably have more choice than ever in kind of assets to participate in. But this wasn't always the case. And I think you've in the past kind of cited uh, Charlie Merrill and, and kind of, um, you know, the work he did in the US to kind of open up uh, you know, public equities for, for retail investors. How much did that play into kind of your thinking for Cedars? Yeah, very, very significantly. So just as background for listeners who are not quite the sort of finance history dorks that that I can be. Um, uh, Charlie Merrill founded a firm called Merrill Lynch, which about 10 years ago after the financial crisis was subsumed into Bank of America, but uh, until then was one of the major brokerage investment banking firms uh, globally. And unlike many of its peers, some of whose names still exist, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, etc., Merrill Lynch started with something of it, actually didn't start with this vision, but by about the you know, the, the late 1940s, uh, after the war, as American GIs were coming home, and there was a real boom of the middle class in America, the sort of vision and strategy that Charlie Merrill imparted uh, was to open up investments in public companies, so, you know, exchange traded businesses to the mass public. This has been something that had been, you know, broadly limited, you know, as as startup investing used to be here and everywhere, you know, broadly limited to the wealthy, the connected, the in the know. And in the late 40s, you know, some of this had started before the war, but 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 particularly in the late 40s, when this boom, you know, a lot of the a lot of Wall Street very much looked down on Merrill and what he was trying to do. And, you know, some of the things, some of the tactics he had were, you know, maybe quaint by today's standards. Certainly they adapted to the technology of the time, but, you know, they had a mobile sort of trading van that would show up in sort of middle-class towns around America and, you know, give people who give lectures and talks about the stock market. You know, he did one of my favorite pieces of advertising ever was an ad that, that Merrill Lynch took out in 46 or 47 in New York Times, I think. And it was a full page ad of just text, 6,000 words, which, you know, even at the time when newspapers were very dense was seen as just terrible advertising. And it was just a whole sort of mini essay on why you should invest in the stock market and what the advantage of it are. Well, it was a hugely and phenomenally successful uh, outcome for Merrill Lynch, which grew successfully. But probably more importantly, it was a massively successful outcome for the average American, because by having portfolios invested in what turned out to be some great boom years for America from the war through the 60s, you know, you saw a whole generation, many of the people who returned from the war, whole generation, you know, develop a level of wealth that their parents never could have conceived of. Um, and a whole generation of companies had the capital available from these retail investors uh, to grow in a way they could. I think that there are many things that you can attribute, you know, America's immediate post-war success to. Um, but I think that that combination spurred by Merrill and then copied by others was certainly an important one. So I've always admired that story. I've admired the work. I don't think he was necessarily the the nicest guy on on the block. There was a joke about how sort of every 13 years the cicadas came and he had a new wife. You know, I mean, there's not the best chap, but he had a great vision. Um, and when we were thinking about Cedars, 
you know, we looked not just at him. I mean, we thought about, you know, even as recently as Zopa. I mean, I have a huge admiration for the folks who founded Zopa. One of them, James Alexander, was has been an early advisor and supporter of ours. And they too, in their way, and other financial pioneers in, in their time, you know, recognized that there are types of investments and types of finance that don't just have to be for the rich, that there is value in making and democratizing them and making them available to everyone. And, and so I've, I've, I've always found that very inspiring and, and I still do. And I like to think that we've done our small part at Cedars to do that for startups and scale-ups as an asset class. I, I love that story too. And I think that one of, one of, the, one of the kind of key reasons that, that I love working at Cedars, but I just love the vision, is that notion that there is a kind of private equivalent that can be built and, and layered into to the financial markets um, that not only distributes that or redistributes elements of wealth to investors who might not participate previously, but also provides investments and, and, and capital to, to companies who can go on to, to innovate. I want to take a slight step change, actually, and this come sort of maybe just a little bit more kind of personal to, to you. Uh, so I've been at Cedars now for close to six years. And I, in that time, I, I worked under two CEOs. Uh, the first, uh, or the one I currently work under, uh, Jeff Kaliski. Uh, and then uh, when I first joined, I was working under under you. You chose to step down as CEO a couple of years ago, a few years ago now. Talk, talk us through that decision and why the timing might have been right for you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So when you found a business and start up in a new space trying to do something new, uh, you don't know what you're doing. You know, you're figuring out your way as you go. But I certainly felt in the early years that it wasn't as if anybody else knew what they were doing any better than I did. And so while I was certainly you know, learning on the job and quite quickly, you know, it being my vision together with Carlos's and, and us as a team, you know, I was probably as well positioned to run the business as, as anybody could be. And then we, we raised our Series A round, which for us was a, a pretty big chunk of money in late 2015 and started scaling the business really in 2016. You know, we had about 20 people, 22 people at the time, and we were going up to 60, 70 and beyond um, pretty quickly. And I realized that actually, the challenges of scaling business are vastly different from the challenges of starting one. They're unlike the sort of starting side. On the scaling side, there are a lot of people out there who have done this before, who know things about you know everything from the details of how you do HR and how you do budgeting and all that, up to just generally how do you think about managing a complex organization. Loads of people have done that successfully. I'm not one of them. You know, I, I started my life as a lawyer. Lawyers, or law firms are great in many ways, but they're terrible at management. Um, you know, they, they tend to just have sort of partners competing amongst each other for associate resource. And, you know, so I never really saw, you know, what a well-managed business looked like. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel I had the necessary experience to do it myself. But also, frankly, I didn't think it was where my skills lay. I, I'm always interested in these businesses where founders bring them not just from zero to one, but one to a hundred, because it, it has always seemed to me that if you are good at the things that take a business from zero to one or zero to five, you know, if, if you're good at the sort of agility, the willingness to act without deep analysis or proof, the, the willingness to take big risks and chances, I would think, you know, for the most part, it would be very difficult to be good at the kind of sort of highly analytical, uh, highly structured decision making and leadership that goes into running a scaling and ultimately uh, mature business. So I- I'm amazed that there are people out there who can do it and my hat's off to them. Um, but I certainly felt that that wasn't me. Um, and so I went to our board in sort of early mid 2016 and said, I would really like 
for us to have a proper CEO come in the door. But at the same time, you know, I think often when that happens, that's part of a founder's sort of departure from the business. But I said, to, I said, look, you know, I'm saying that, but that doesn't mean I want to leave. If I'm not adding value, of course I'll go. But, you know, I think I've got a lot of value left to add. I think there are so many novel and strategic initiatives that we want to do as a business and that are very hard to do alongside also running the thing. So, you know, I carved out a role for myself as executive chairman, uh, which has been a full-time role ever since I took it, you know, four, four plus years ago. And it can be a little bit hodgepodge. It definitely jumps in and out of, you know, different kind of things, but it has allowed me in many ways to, I think, play to some of my strengths and certainly to avoid some of my weaknesses. Who knows if that's a great thing from a professional development perspective. I'm sure they tell you, you know, you should sort of lean into your weaknesses and, and build on them. And, and so I've been very lucky and very privileged, I guess, to spend the last four years largely doing the kind of work that, you know, I, I wanted to do and feel that I'm good at. But most importantly, most importantly for the business, you know, Jeff Gliske has been a really outstanding CEO. Uh, he and I have worked together very well. I appreciated his willingness to let me stay on. You know, sometimes having the old boss sitting there, you know, over your shoulder isn't going to be the, isn't the most fun thing to do, but he took a chance on that and we developed a, a very strong working relationship. Um, and he has brought the discipline of the business you know, to a scaling business. And, you know, and I, so I, you know, we talk about sort of zero to one and one to a hundred. Well, you know, I brought the business from you know, zero in revenue to about a million a year in revenues. You know, he's now brought it from a million to, you know, what will be well north of five this year, probably substantially north of that. And, you know, that's exactly what we wanted. And now it's just to continue on to 100. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really fascinating to hear, especially kind of relating it back to you know, Charlie Merrill and I guess that CEO vision. I guess and in the act of stepping down, how tough was that when, you know, the company went off in different directions? And I think one sort of topic I'm really keen to get your thoughts on here is you know um the prospective merger that that, that Cedar's kind of announced and then tried to go through which was very much I guess a different direction for you know what effectively you know most entrepreneurs call their baby how tough was that for you to be you know not you know the one I guess steering the ship um and that, that merger itself which you know I guess when you started the business probably didn't seem the ultimate outcome how did that come about it's a great set of questions. And and one thing I guess I will I will say at the outset is that as chairman, I did have the opportunity to be pretty closely involved in that and, you know, at various different times led or or had a you know, senior role in what was really a very long and drawn out process. And I think that, you know, in terms of the personal views on things, that was helpful. I think if if I had felt that somebody was sort of doing this out from under me or against my opposition, I probably would have found that difficult. I'd love to say, you know, we're all, you know, entirely rational human beings, but we're not. And, and so I think the fact that this was a journey that I actually initiated uh, right about the time and the conversations that led to you know, the our ultimate agreement of a deal in late 2020, you know, I had begun with a lunch with the Crowdcube CEO uh, shortly before Christmas uh, 2016, I think. And we had mooted the idea. It had been on and had been off. We'd looked at doing it. We'd not looked at doing it, but it was very much a journey that I'd been part of. In terms of, you know, why to pursue it, I mean, I, I think I would say a couple of things. One is that, you know, ultimately, even if we're not all entirely rational all the time, you know, in being the steward of shareholders' money, you do have to ultimately do the right things for the business. And in many ways, you know, the combination with Crowdcube, as the market here matured, and as both of us started to converge, we started Crowdcube and we 
from a very different position in terms of how we viewed the market, how we viewed, you know, what we were trying to do. We had different values, I think. As those differences started to narrow and there was, you know, greater alignment, there was just a lot of potential financial logic to the deal. There was a lot to be said, uh, we felt for, and I felt, for effectively being able to combine forces to take the fight, so to speak, you know, more broadly into the market. As some listeners will will be aware, and others maybe not, you know, the deal was ultimately blocked by the competition regulators because the feeling was that we were taking away competition in the crowdfunding world. And we get that view. It's not a shocking view to have, but we think it was very much the wrong view because the way we always viewed the way Crowdcube and we always viewed this was that we were bringing more competition to the broader equity funding landscape. Um, but anyway, so it, it seemed like a sensible deal to do. Um, and then look, I think the other aspect is, I always try to be very you know candid about sort of how we've done as a business. And, and I think you know the answer is we've done well, but we haven't knocked it out of the park yet. I was saying to somebody earlier, actually, that you know, when I went into this, when I started out and decided I was going to try my hand at being an entrepreneur, I mean, I really kind of thought there were only two outcomes. I thought either you sort of achieve stratospheric growth overnight, or you wound up face down in a gutter. And I, and I knew the latter was much more likely than the former, but we're all a little nuts, you know, who go into this kind of thing. So you take the risk. And what we have found at Cedars, you know, through these years is that we have delivered very strong, but largely linear, you know, to a limited extent exponential, but, you know, not stratospheric uh, type of growth. And that's fine. And we've built a great business and that's exciting. But Look, we want to take over the world with this. We think the opportunity to create, you know, a truly, truly comprehensive market for private investments is just, you know, phenomenal in the UK, in Europe, and globally. Um, and we want to move faster. Um, and I think that, you know, the opportunity to combine forces with another platform like a Crowdcube and accelerate that journey was very, very compelling. And I still think it would have been. I mean, I look, you know, we're we're in great shape. 2021 has been a great year for us. Um, I think sometimes you come out of a busted deal, we're heavily wounded. We're fortunate that we didn't. And, and I don't think Crowdcube did either. I think we're both continuing on our original plans and adapting our strategies. And I think that's fantastic. But yeah, look, you know, this is, it's a fast moving world. We only live for so long and, you know, we'd like to build a business as quickly as possible. That would have been one way to do it, but there are many other ways as well. No, t- totally fascinating and certainly really interesting good to go through. You mentioned there on the alignment between the two businesses. Um, and there's the school of thought that, as you said, you know, on the crowdfunding side, you could look at the market with us and Crowdcube as effectively a duopoly. How much of that sentiment did you have versus, you know, kind of legitimately reason for blocking the merger? Or you know, how much do you still feel that the CMA were kind of you know, wrong in their judgment and that it wasn't great for the context of kind of UK startups trying to go out and conquer the world? Yeah, look, I, I think the CMA made a real mistake, um, and I think it has set a bad precedent along with some other bad precedents they've set over recent years in their overall shift on looking at technology deals. You know, I think the one of the things that was clear to us, and I think we said as much to the CMA in, in one of our early submissions, was at a superficial level, we absolutely understand why this would look anti-competitive. But when you look at the detail, when you look at all the data and all the evidence we have, when you look at the representations submitted by entrepreneurial associations and and many others, you will see that it's not quite what it looks like on the surface. And the reality is that, you know, the market we compete in is much wider than crowdfunding. And we were able to show that, you know, we gave them lists of the deals that we have lost and only a tiny that we fought for and wanted to win and only a tiny proportion of them 
were actually lost to Crowdcube um, or even to any crowdfunding platform. The vast majority were lost to angels, to VCs, to other forms of finance. And, you know, to us, you know, that and a number of other things made it absolutely clear what this market was. But they decided it was clear in retrospect that they formed a view at the beginning and they let us do nine months worth of work to try to persuade them otherwise, but they were never going to change their minds. They were locked in their view. Um, and I think that comes from a bent uh, that the current CMA has to say that technology M&A is bad. I think they feel burned by some of the deals like Facebook, Instagram that they approved years ago. And they, on the pen, you know, the pendulum has swung the other way. You know, I, I'm not a competition law expert and I don't have, you know, a whole lot new or novel to say about the anti-competitive or otherwise impact of Google and Facebook and all in the world. But I do think that when you take two companies whose combined revenue is less than 15 million pounds, uh, who were both unprofitable and sort of looking to try to build out a market that everybody has agreed is good for customers, uh, to block that kind of a deal is effectively, you know, is, is, is borderline rogue. Um, and so, no, I think the CMA has erred tremendously. I know there was a lot of political upset at very senior levels of government about their action here. And I'm hopeful that with time and potentially with staff changes, the CMA will perhaps swing more to a middle ground in terms of looking at these deals going forward. I sort of think remembering the whole thing felt a little bit kind of detrimental to, to just UK PLC and that sense of how we can kind of sort of elevate the UK startups to be competitive not only in Europe, but against the sort of the big money players of the US and, and Asia as well. You touched on it just then. And I know you're also sort of very involved with Codec, which I'll let you kind of explain a little bit more about. But, but what sort of responsibility do you think sort of government politicians, policymakers have in creating the environment for startups, that next generation of innovation to flourish? It's a great question. So yeah, so Codec, which is the Coalition for a Digital Economy, uh, is a nonprofit advocacy group for for the startup and scale up ecosystem uh, that I helped set up about ten years ago and now serve as, as chairman of. And it, you know, I'm, I've always been interested in policy uh, issues, and it's uh, very interesting work. And under the leadership of our executive director Dom Hallis, it's really done a phenomenal job of making the case to government on a wide range of topics relevant to growing private companies. Um, and we've had some great policy outcomes as as a result. I think government plays a very important role, but sometimes that role is as much about forbearance um, as it is about positive action. You know, I do not think that government playing venture capitalist, with exceptions, there was the Future Fund and, and you know, during COVID and there are some certain other types of things, but even that was pretty well structured. You know, generally speaking, government playing venture capitalist or picking, trying to pick winners in the space, I don't think that's good. But there is a whole lot that can be done, you know, to help foster the ecosystem. Uh, some of it is positive action. So in the UK, we have some of the most generous tax reliefs for uh, investing in early stage businesses. And I think those have been absolutely critical uh, to the growth of the startup ecosystem over these last 10, 15 years. Um, so I think that's been very important. I think there have been other tax policies like R&D tax credits uh, that have been very useful, you know, and a number of other things. But I, I think there is also a huge role for government in understanding how the ecosystem works and not over-regulating it, not over being overly involved. So for example, I mean, with, with merger control, you know, you could argue that you know, actually the problem with the CMA is too much action. You probably want government to do less there or take a less interventionist role. The other thing I think government does very, very well or can do very, very well is provide a platform and provide publicity around the startup ecosystem. And we noticed this particularly in the early days of the coalition government, 2010, 2011, 
when you know, David Cameron, George Osborne, and that group, you know, sort of coined the concept of tech city and started celebrating and, and publicizing the UK startup ecosystem. And I remember there were founders and others in the ecosystem at the time who sort of resented it, who said, look, you know, they're just they're just taking credit for all this stuff that we've built. It's just hot air, etc. My view at the time was, I think it's fantastic. I don't care who takes credit for it. If they're shouting to the world about how great UK startups are, the world will start taking notice and suddenly it becomes more of a reality. And I think that's exactly what happened. VCs and other investors internationally, limited partners in those funds and others who wouldn't have previously touched the UK ecosystem actually started to really notice it, not you know, in, in no small part due to the hype. So I, I do think government plays a very important role, not in a big sort of top-down command and control way, but in a slightly more nuanced way. They can be very important in having an ecosystem flourish. Cool. So we've covered a sort of lot today. What are you excited about coming out of the UK? Um, we've obviously had a couple of years where Brexit happens, the pandemic happens. There's a lot of stuff not to be particularly happy about, but we've also seen huge amounts of innovation globally, huge amounts of innovation, especially in the UK. What gets you excited? What gets you up? Uh, what gets you? What gets you to work in the morning? First, at a, at a macro level, I mean, I moved to the UK over 15 years ago, and and one of the reasons I've always liked being here, I spent some time here as a student, and have now spent you know almost the entirety of my career here, is is I think the UK has a unique position in the world as you know as a bridge between you know many different economies many different countries and even with brexit and even sitting outside the european union I do think that, you know, Britain's role as a hub uh, for the, the Americas as they come to this part of the world, for Asia as it comes to this part of the world, and as a partner with Europe, you know, it, it has a huge amount of value across many industries and across many sectors, and the sort of tech innovation and startup landscape is no different. So I'm, I'm generally bullish on the UK as a great place to be building businesses, always have been and, and continue to be. What are we going to see going forward? I've never been one who has been great at predicting sort of sectors uh, specifically but I can talk in slightly different terms. I think that one of the things that is, you know, up ahead in our next five to 10 years, you know, are the first really massive uh, British and European tech businesses. You know, 10 years ago, we were talking about, you know, can we build unicorns here? And and the answer was, we're not so sure. I mean, it was, there was Skype and that was kind of it. And, you know, there was really, you know, businesses were getting bought, you know, even good businesses, businesses that were starting up and doing well, they were getting bought for, few hundred million dollars or pounds by American or other businesses. And the opportunity to build a great European business really wasn't there. You had companies like Arm and SAP uh, from a different generation, but in the sort of internet age, nothing was happening. Now we have so many unicorns in Britain, so many businesses that have achieved well in excess of, of a billion valuations that that's no longer a question. I think the next question is, you know, I don't that much care for the decacorn or whatever, centacorn or whatever terms, but there is a question of, you know, can we build here businesses of the kind of scale of the big, truly giant tech companies in the US and in China? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. We've still got a ways to go, but I think on the fintech side, Revolut, you know, where it what it's achieved so far and, and several others just behind it. Um, and I think in other verticals uh, as well. So I think one of the exciting things is going to be the advent of really sort of 
very, very substantially scaled businesses being built here um, and elsewhere in Europe. I think the the other dynamic, and obviously the two go together, is just going to be interconnectedness and, and the global nature of these businesses. I think that, yeah, and this is an area where the pandemic has potentially assisted some in the sense that remote workforces are going to become more common, customer bases are going to become more common. And so unless you're in several very specific industries, like we are in regulated industry, you know, the notion that you're a UK business, and then you decide you're going to launch in Germany, or then you're going to launch in Italy, I think it's going to become obsolete. I think you're going to see more and more businesses we already see it to an extent, but you're going to see more and more businesses that are kind of global from day one, don't have necessarily a clear national identity to them and capitalize on wherever their market may find itself and wherever their labor force, workforce may find itself uh, anywhere in the world. So I think that's going to be a very interesting trend in terms of, you know, what's the next big sector? What's the next big thing? Trust me, I would love to know the answer because I would put my money there, but I'm going to leave, you know, all the, the many investors in our market uh, in the Cedars market to make that decision. And I, I think they're going to choose wisely. Brilliant. Jeff, thank you so much uh, for, for your time today. Super, super interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, can't, can't wait for, for our listeners to hear it. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. As always, you can find out more about our guests in the podcast description or online at cedars.com forward slash go fund yourself, where you can also find this episode's transcript and other exclusive content. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you want to invest in some of the best and brightest startups in Europe, sign up at cedars.com forward slash sign up. See you next week.